Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 66, The Winter of Our Discontent. Or, General McClellan Feels He Needs More Enemies. Before we begin, I want to mention that I delayed this episode today after realizing that I went on a long explanation of strategic concepts that we just didn't need right in the middle of the script. Instead, I have moved that to next week as a bonus. I apologize for the lateness of the episode. In the fall and winter of 1861, General George Brinton McClellan underwent a subtle and unwholesome transformation all the more dangerous because it went partly unrecognized. Unfortunately for his historical reputation, the cause of all the trouble really was his own fault. To recap, McClellan experienced the most rapid rise in status of any man in a war that produced many, many rapid improvements in status. Formerly an army officer with a good reputation and bright career prospects, he left the service to make an even greater splash in the railroad business. When the war began, McClellan had not one, not two, but three states vying to have him lead their volunteers. Mostly due to a quirk of timing, Ohio got him on board. He soon had the volunteers marching into western Virginia and securing the vital strategic border region. Partly because of proximity, partly because of his early success, and partly because he built a relationship with General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, McClellan received the call to take command of the Army of the Potomac in the aftermath of the failure at Bull Run. Again, General McClellan, now the commander of a huge army, seemed at first to do very well. He quickly had the military situation well in hand and got the army into its camps, training and arming. However, he pushed back, perhaps correctly, against the idea of quickly taking the fight against Joe Johnston and his presumably strong army. General McClellan did not intend to move until he fully believed that the move would succeed. The example of Bull Run seemed reason enough. And for a month or two, nobody argued. But Washington politics brought McClellan into conflict with his own patron. As summer gave way to autumn, General George McClellan carried out some very obnoxious backroom politics-style maneuvers to oust Winfield Scott. He blamed Scott for his inability to advance, and used a number of petty actions to undermine his superior. In the end, Scott refused to take this insubordination and resigned. In his place, McClellan well knew, President Lincoln could appoint only one man. McClellan himself. There simply was no one else with the rank and prestige to take over. Lincoln warned McClellan, in fact, that the task ahead was an awfully large one. I can do it all, McClellan answered. And yet there were reasons that General-in-Chief Winfield Scott had not wanted to advance McClellan into his own place, at least not at that time. McClellan was young and had not actually led an army into battle, and certainly not the kind of fight that really tests a leader's ability. Although McClellan had at least some passing idea of strategy, Scott very likely saw this as potential. McClellan had led one good campaign up in western Virginia, and that was more than anyone else could say. Yet was that really enough? To clarify, McClellan's original concept of strategy, as described in communications to Scott back when McClellan was up in Ohio, discussed military affairs in the simplest of terms. 
he thought of gathering a huge army, rolling southward, and attacking Richmond from the Appalachian front. He could then simply advance along the roads, capturing Confederate cities, in turn, at least as far as Charleston, assuming the Confederates had that much fight left in them. Scott approved that McClellan thought ahead, but gently put the notion to the side. Having commanded long-distance campaigns in hostile territory, he appreciated difficulties of logistics and supply that McClellan did not. Even at Bull Run, the Union and Confederacy met in battle with two forces both larger than Scott had led into Mexico. Even the wealthy and industrious northern states could not supply the swelling armies over mountain ranges, at least not until they had cut a rail line into them first. This brings us to the matter of logistics, which arguably takes precedence before fighting in the field in the Civil War. Well, in reality, these issues apply to a great many wars even in antiquity. Historically, most armies for most countries for most of world history were much smaller than you might expect, 10,000 men or less. Although mighty empires like Rome, Persia, or China could theoretically put great armies into the field, that was a very costly matter. Simply put, an army of 50,000 men on foot will lead entire regions into poverty in short order. And if they've got large cavalry forces as well, then the horses often need huge quantities of grain or fodder. Now, historically, large armies frequently needed to pre-position food along the route of the march. They could also forage, which is more or less stealing, if they didn't particularly care about upsetting the people living nearby. This took many forms in terms of organization, from Caesar requiring that his allies in Gaul prepare grain for his use, to the long-standing Persian royal road. Men had to organize all of this with, at best, people carrying messages on horseback. For a more recent example, that is why General Scott necessarily kept his force in Mexico to a small size, smaller than his opponent's forces by a long shot. He had very few men to spare as it was, but even so, he concentrated the healthiest and strongest in his army and left the rest to stand guard. The Americans in 1849 could not possibly supply a large force across the Gulf of Mexico and over a mountain range. General Scott wisely didn't try. And yet the railroad, and very significantly the telegraph, changed everything. It was the dawn of a new age, one not dependent on muscle power or even the wind in the form of sealing ships. Railroads could, and soon did, transport war material by the hundreds of tons, anywhere and in more or less any environment or weather. Suddenly, it became possible to keep huge armies in the field indefinitely. Additionally, it now became possible to coordinate military movements and the transportation of supply across vast gulfs of space and time. Even as late as the Napoleonic Wars, when some nations fielded armies in excess of 200,000, those armies simply stripped the land bare and necessarily had to keep moving. By the time of the Civil War, only 40 years afterward, armies of 150,000 could camp in place for months on end. Indeed, on the Union side, the soldiers often felt hard done by if they didn't receive their food flawlessly on time every time. While the Confederate soldier often had to make do, and frequently went hungry, the North even had capacity to spare. For example, they supplied their troops with decent quality coffee, 
every day. It's true that boats and ships did their job in this war and did it well, but the primary mode of supply for soldiers remained the railroad. That applied to very nearly every last Union and Confederate command. Only Union soldiers along the coastline or advancing along rivers, where the nearest railheads often lay in Confederate hands, would primarily take their supply from watercraft. Even then, however, the steam engine had become vitally important in maintaining year-round shipping, and the supplies moved to the shipping ports on the railroad. General Scott, despite his age, seemed to understand these factors, at least in part. It's not at all clear that George McClellan, despite his youth and extensive experience with the railroads, ever did. He had never managed matters of supply in his military career, and he took little note of the first tentative uses of railroads in the Crimean War. Remember that he had been an observer at Sevastopol. And this was important, because railroads completely changed the strategic picture. They became the vital arteries that supplied the armies as they moved. One side or the other might also attack railroads in order to weaken an opponent or force him into a bad position. Also of considerable significance, one massive impact of the rail lines lay in the fact that they could allow a defending force to concentrate very quickly, bringing in troops faster than an attacker could march. These factors would initially hinder federal efforts to advance. General McClellan necessarily needed to learn this, and then adapt to the new reality faster and more effectively than his counterparts leading Confederate armies. General Scott no doubt intended that McClellan focus exclusively on the Potomac Front, and would have assisted him in learning and managing all this. But McClellan's essentially immediately placed him in command of forces far beyond the scope of anything he had ever handled previously, and he perhaps did not adapt well. To clarify, while Scott was still in charge, McClellan came up with a new plan to gather a single army of over 200,000 men in Washington and make that strike, under his command, of course. Even with the railroads supplying him, this represented rank stupidity, of such Napoleonic hubris that it called into question the sanity of the man who offered it. An army of that size would push even the Union to its limit, and would basically strip every available soldier from most other commands. Now, by August, McClellan continued his slide with the first of his continuing theme of wildly overestimating the size of the rebel army. He declared that Joe Johnston must have 100,000 men, something around triple the actual number at that time. In fact, his Confederate counterpart Joe Johnston felt some confusion when seeing McClellan's huge army sitting around unused and inactive. Though pleased that he had time to train and desperately recruit and arm more soldiers, Johnson also had a hard time understanding what McClellan was up to. He assumed there must have been some clever plan to use those very real soldiers. In reality, McClellan envisioned them squaring off against the unnumbered legions of his imagination. In that respect, Joe Johnson greatly overestimated McClellan's ability as much as McClellan overestimated Johnson's numbers. The two had known one another very well, and Johnson could not believe his younger friend would make such a foolish error. McClellan's estimates would more or less never get below that initial guess of a 100,000 in Johnston's and later Lee's army alone. If anything, he would steadily revise his assumption upward, even to the point of absurdity. At some times when McClellan commanded the largest army ever seen in the Americas, he would insist that his opponents somehow had twice that. Furthermore, 
McClellan often twisted the work of a Union spymaster, Alan Pinkerton. Pinkerton is a really interesting figure, and the founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. At times a self-appointed bodyguard for President Lincoln, and at others an amateur military intelligence officer, he more or less accidentally created today's Secret Service. Pinkerton's legacy is complex even apart from the Civil War. Frankly, he deserves an entire episode given his fascinating lifetime, and perhaps will do just that. But his importance today lies in the fact that his attempts to gather and manage military intelligence left much to be desired. That said, he had to build an intelligence service from scratch in a nation that had not previously needed one. The very short version is that Pinkerton didn't necessarily have a good handle on how to assess the data he received, and tended to hand it off unfiltered and unverified. This gave McClellan some amount of political cover. Once Pinkerton's reports came in, he could point to the fact that they were, very, very roughly, in line with his own. McClellan protested too much. Way too much. Pinkerton's reports already significantly overestimated Confederate strength, but McClellan added ten or 20,000 on top. Moreover, McClellan also didn't particularly look at what the spies actually documented, which tended to include more or less reasonable estimates of Confederate strength in entire regions. By taking these numbers, and pretending that every single Confederate soldier in northern Virginia had been concentrated into a single striking force aimed at him, McClellan could pretend that his wild overestimations came from solid military evidence. This is not to excuse Pinkerton's reporting in its entirety, which, as mentioned, was hopelessly amateurish. But then, Pinkerton was an amateur, doing his best to learn the trade of spymaster. And if his spies didn't know their business either, they managed to gather many useful first-hand accounts. McClellan, the professional, ought to have known better. Others in the government weren't fooled, probably including Lincoln, on account of, well, logistics. They could see that the Confederacy's rail transportation system, though superb by world standards, looked feeble in comparison to that of the North alone. The Confederacy had far fewer resources to begin with, and yet McClellan kept insisting that he faced a vast army in the field that he alone could see. The numbers literally didn't add up. Related to this was McClellan's tendency to micromanagement, insisting that he absolutely had to be on hand whenever possible to oversee key areas. He personally undertook reconnaissance, monitored training, and oversaw staff meetings. Taking part in such matters can be good for an officer of high rank, so as not to lose touch with the situation on the ground. McClellan took this too far, however, because he allowed these low-level matters to overwhelm him. In public, he appeared to have boundless energy. In private, he became tired and irritable. His exhaustion and inner fears then manifested in the endless rebel hordes. Those assumed numberless legions at Joe Johnson's disposal also contributed to the fatal breakup with General Scott. Scott could count the numbers far better than McClellan, and did not panic as his subordinate now did. Also, General Scott had many campaigns under his belt. He knew that the enemy always looks more imposing from afar. More to the point, he found McClellan's insistence that the capital itself lay under immediate and extreme threat nearly a personal insult. In any case, McClellan showed his nature and lack of strategic vision in October, when he failed to support the Navy in clearing the Potomac River of Confederate posts. Evidently, 
he failed to realize how controlling the river from the sea to Washington, D.C. would help him. If you recall, in the aftermath of Bull Run, the Confederates pushed some of their posts up to the Potomac River. The very nearest were only just within eyesight of the city of Washington. But down south, along the river, Confederates placed batteries to bombard any ship passing along. Unsurprisingly, the Navy didn't take too kindly to that, and intended to remove the saucy rebs. They aimed to make a major attack to clear Mateus Point. McClellan did not want to detach any soldiers for the attack, which the Navy felt would require ground troops as well as ships and sailors. But in the end, he agreed, and so the joint operation went ahead on the night of September 30th. Except it didn't. McClellan never sent any troops, which left the Navy men standing around impotently. When confronted, McClellan again agreed to go ahead the next night, but then again did not send any troops. More irritatingly, and actually rather insultingly, in neither case did he bother to explain himself to the Navy beforehand. This was bad manners, sure, but it was also dangerous behavior for the General-in-Chief of the United States. The Navy was a co-equal branch of the armed forces. They had their own cabinet-level leader. McClellan acted as though he owed them nothing, not even common respect. However mediocre he might have been at leading the Army of the Potomac, McClellan became more aggressive in playing politics, bypassing General Scott, and ignoring Lincoln's attempts to resolve the problem. At a cabinet meeting on September 27th, Scott openly questioned McClellan's behavior. Afterward, he demanded an explanation, saying that McClellan had in effect destroyed their relationship. You had my friendship and confidence, he said. You still have my confidence. All Scott received in response was a silent sneer from his overbold subordinate. McClellan, clearly not realizing how he might look to others, wrote to his wife, I kept cool, looked him square in the face, and rather think I got the better of him. We may note that McClellan, though shrinking in fear of the Confederate army, eagerly challenged an older and wiser man in the game of politics. This brings us to a somewhat questionable aspect of McClellan's character, as revealed in his private correspondence with his wife. Now first, it is entirely understandable that he might privately vent his frustrations to family, close friends, or other confidants. He faced a great deal of stress, and needed to express it somehow, and better private than public. He was hardly alone in this. That would have been entirely normal. However, McClellan's letters to his wife reveal a somewhat ugly side to his character, that same cold sneer he directed at Winfield Scott. He directed that at nearly anyone who is not immediately on his side, and anyone who seemingly might be in power over him. McClellan seemingly lacked the ability to believe that a man might be wrong without also hating him personally, and he seemed to think that every superior must somehow be in the wrong. Furthermore, his wife played no small role in feeding his ego, agreeing with every judgment, and pushing his more narcissistic traits. McClellan seemed to easily fall into a belief that his new rank was the very will of the Almighty, and he the chosen instrument. This, in addition to his natural pride, prevented McClellan from ever seeing or recognizing that he might be the one in the wrong. A few weeks later, in mid-October, came the humiliating, if not especially dangerous, defeat at Ball's Bluff. 
This accelerated rather than slowed McClellan's ascent to power. Radical Republicans who wanted firmer and faster action believed that Scott had slowed and mitigated it. This was not in the main true, but McClellan told them it was true. And the Radicals pressured Lincoln hard on the matter. And at that very moment, Democrats lined up to support McClellan, a party stalwart. But the biggest problem was General Scott himself, in a way. Though hardly on his deathbed, he had become too tired and too old to lead anymore. More to the point, he just didn't have the fight left in him to deal with McClellan's betrayal. Scott knew the score, and only intended to hold on long enough to resign in favor of Henry Halleck. But Halleck's return from California took more time than expected, and Scott finally resigned, effective November 1st. Lincoln, probably with some misgivings already, had no one else to appoint to the role of general-in-chief except McClellan. McClellan responded by doing a great deal and very little. McClellan had all kinds of meetings and plans and maps, a veritable flurry of activity. And yet somehow he never seemed to issue very much in the way of useful orders. McClellan's habit of micromanagement came into this as well. The Army of the Potomac alone was simply too large for him to deal with all of these things. Just for as an example, his penchant for personal reconnaissance was simply not going to do the job. In an army of a 100,000, he could not be on every flank and all the front simultaneously. He was going to have to learn to see through the eyes of others. And he seemingly didn't want to do that. Keeping his personal hand in represented a kind of escape from the responsibilities of actually taking on the role of army commander. At the same time, his constant micromanagement also arguably prevented subordinates from developing the confidence to lead on their own. But McClellan also now needed to command as general-in-chief, and this was a lot to handle. Granted, the Union command, especially in these early days, was very stretched. No one could have grasped all the forces moving throughout the country. The Union, more than the Confederacy, the Union, even more than the Confederacy, had to build from almost nothing the bureaucracy and command apparatus necessary to recruit soldiers, arm them, get them into the field, and then get them moving against the enemy. And arguably, the existing bureaucracy actually hindered these efforts. It is absolutely not shameful that McClellan, or any other man, could not have kept all of this in their mind's eye. The problem lay in the point that McClellan had very little intention of doing what he could do, which was to lay out a specific strategy outlining major campaigns and targets for each command. All the details McClellan could leave to subordinates, such as John C. Freeman, while he was still in command of the Department of the West. However, as General-in-Chief, McClellan had the responsibility to manage strategy in cooperation with the President. Additionally, even though he was a civilian, the Secretary of War could expect to have a considerable influence in this process as well. However, Secretary of War Simon Cameron had his hands more than full dealing with matters of supply and the tidal wave of contracts he now had to manage. For the time being, his influence mattered very little. In fact, he would soon find himself replaced by one of General McClellan's closest political allies, Edwin Stanton. And yet at the end of the day, McClellan had no clear idea of strategy, in a war quickly defined by and ultimately won by strategic concerns. This was rather a problem, 
roughly in the same degree that a Union soldier with one leg shot off would face difficulties charging the reps. And General McClellan had to personally oversee the Army of the Potomac at the same time, more than enough work for two men. From start to last, McClellan identified almost his only goal as capture Richmond. He believed that by building up a single huge army, he could roll forward and do that. He further assumed that there would be no effective resistance once he accomplished that. This alone was a set of very questionable ideas. And McClellan never had any other plan of going about this goal, nor any consideration of any other goal, for whatever else might become necessary. McClellan's rise in rank also marked his descent as far as leadership went. Having promised the Radical Republicans that he would march on Joe Johnston once Scott left, he now pulled back. His military plans appeared to shrink in scope and aggressiveness by the day, even as he expanded his estimate of the Confederate force upwards of 150,000. Even with Joe Johnston reinforcing as fast as possible, this was more than triple the actual Confederate force facing Washington in late fall. As the weeks turned into months, McClellan created ever more grand plans to defeat the Confederacy, and yet did not take so much as a single step forward. Lincoln, frustrated, tried to suggest some minor initial goals for his army, such as moving on Occoquan, south of Washington. McClellan declined. In fact, McClellan privately sneered at the present now, as he had sneered at General Scott, calling him the original guerrilla, among other things. And this was by no means a friendly jibe at the lanky president. McClellan mockingly laughed off the president's discussion of strategy to subordinates. He apparently didn't bother to consider that the president of the United States might, just might, have some say in a war over the future of the United States. So, too, Lincoln proved in the end a fairly astute student of strategy, and one wonders if the discussions didn't simply fly right over McClellan's head. To be as fair as possible, McClellan was considering a legitimately clever military move, trying to flank Joe Johnston and his presumably huge army by landing on the coast and advancing inland. And yet at the same time, he was making enemies of anyone and everyone he might need to call upon to assist. The president, leading politicians, and the navy all soon became deeply frustrated with McClellan's unwillingness to move, even when all McClellan had to do was sign a simple order. And McClellan finally managed to personally offend the president, no small feat, given that Lincoln had seemingly endless reserves of patience. In mid-November, the president, William Seward, and John Hay, Lincoln's private secretary, all visited General McClellan's rented home in Washington. McClellan happened to be out for a wedding, so they waited until he returned an hour later. McClellan said not a word to any of them, but went right upstairs. After a short while, a military aide discovered that McClellan had gone to bed and notified the guests of such. This astonished Mr. Seward and infuriated Mr. Hay, but Lincoln shrugged it off. He even reportedly responded, I will hold McClellan's horse if he will only bring us success. And yet in the future, he would stop treating McClellan quite in such friendly terms. For the moment, McClellan did not move, would not move of his own accord, and could not be moved by others. He waited and delayed until the last embers of summer faded and the winter chill began, and this essentially stopped military activity on the Potomac front until spring. 
McClellan explicitly bound himself to a very dangerous and, frankly, silly military rule. His axiom was that there is only one safe rule in war, to decide what is the very worst thing that can happen to you and prepare to meet it. But the problem with this is that the very worst thing that can happen to you is almost never the most likely thing that can happen to you. It's not even the most likely thing that the enemy is going to do to you. Sure, the worst thing that could happen to McClellan is that he was attacked by Joe Johnson's 150,000 men. But that wasn't actually very likely. It wasn't even possible in the end. And McClellan just couldn't recognize it. Even as he foundered on the Potomac and refused to budge until the return of warm weather, other commanders began to plan winter campaigns. Of some note for upcoming events is that General McClellan used his authority to appoint Henry Halleck to a very important position overseeing Missouri. He also divided the Department of the West and appointed General Buell to lead efforts on the western side of the Appalachians. The dividing line between the two commanders looked rather hazy. Ultimately, the two wound up both competing and cooperating for influence. General Grant, in his advance into Tennessee, would report to Halleck but would find his forces crossing over with Buell's and as it happened, General Grant was eager to get a move on, and saw no particular reason to wait around until spring. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.